There's a few things to say by way of uh, housekeeping to clarify that we didn't get a chance to say in the announcement session uh, this Wednesday because it is the day before Thanksgiving. There will be no youth up here at the church, so sorry to disappoint, but that will alleviate some pressure from your parents. Also, if you are a visitor, please do fill out the visitor card so I can follow up and talk to you if you're into that. So if not, I understand, but please fill it out and drop it in the offering box there at the back of the room. And there was one other thing, but I forget. So let us pray, and then we will turn together to 1 Peter chapter 1. Father, thank you for this opportunity, this, this profound privilege of approaching you together as your people, as we seek to know, as we seek to dive into how it is that you have saved us and, and on what basis we should praise you. Thank you that you give us instruction, not just for the right things to say or, or the right ways to think, but, but the mo- motivations for how we ought to feel and, and what ought to drive us to praise you. Thank you for giving us such a text like we come to today. Please strengthen us now as we come to feed on your word together as your people. And may I present it in a way that is faithful and clear and helpful. In Jesus' name, amen. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter begins his letter with such a text. There is so much that he wants to tell us, so much that he wants to instruct us in. But by beginning this way, he's essentially telling us we need to begin by praising and magnifying the Lord. Very different is a beginning like this than what we encounter, say, in Galatians, where he begins with a brief introduction of who he is, Paul, an apostle of Jesus, a servant of Jesus Christ, apostle of Jesus Christ. I am astonished that you are being bewitched, he says in summary. He's aghast at what has happened. And, and even though there may be problems in the different churches around in uh, modern-day Turkey or Asia Minor where this letter is addressed, he begins by telling them, let's get this straight in our minds right now, that the Christian life... All of it should culminate in praise, in praising the Lord. And it is important that we look at what exactly this word blessed means. He begins by saying, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there are actually two word groups in the New Testament that you will encounter that are translated the exact same way to the word blessed. In Matthew 5, we encounter the very famous Beatitudes, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. That's actually a different word in the original language than we encounter here. The word there in Matthew 5 could be translated something like this, happy or plentiful or uh, joyful are those who are this way. But this word that we encounter here in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, means something else. Uh, It's actually where we get the word in our English language of eulogy. So, uh, not to be confused with what we say at a funeral, but that word means good words, or or a good speech, or, or speaking good words about, to praise with words, to attribute glory, to worship with our words in the case of God, or, or to honor someone else with good words, or to speak well of someone. That's what this word means when we encounter it here in verse 3. Peter is beginning the body of his letter, and he sets the tone for the rest of his instruction to us with the central element of praise. He doesn't praise the audience, which was common in his day when you open up a letter, even if you had something that you had to say that was maybe unpleasant, you would praise the audience in certain ways. And you see that actually in the New Testament with 1 Thessalonians, 2 Corinthians, and a few other places praising the audience in some way. But Peter begins by praising the Lord. 
And the more general the letter is in the New Testament, the more we actually encounter this pattern. So, we could think of this beginning, this verse, this, this phrase, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, is something like this. May all praise and worth be ascribed to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. May His name be blessed. Something along those lines. That's what he's saying. And the rest of this introduction, which is really one long sentence to the last of verse 12, right? So from verse 3 to verse 12 is one sentence. So if if you're teaching English, you might call that a run-on sentence, but it's actually not. And it's common in Greek to have paragraph-long sentences. So um, I have biblical grounds for talking the way I do. So you can think about that. So yes, one sentence from verse 3 to verse 12. And he's telling us exactly why it is that God should be praised. So think of, this is the logic of the passage. I want you to see this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the central claim of verses 3 through 12. And in the rest of that section, he tells us exactly why it is that the Lord should be praised. The Christian life is a life of praise from beginning to end. And it is the end goal of salvation. We saw already in verses 1 through 2 that we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ, being conformed by the Spirit into the type of people who would intuitively and out of joy obey Jesus is part of the point. But the way that we obey Jesus in a summary fashion is to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. To follow Jesus' example in the most clear and basic sense is to give all praise and glory and honor to God the Father. Because that's what Jesus does. He comes to do His Father's will. In the most foundational way, that's what He came to do. Note again, we've discussed this before, but God is being introduced to us in relation to Jesus. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We as Christians do not worship God generally. We do not relate to a power in the sky, a heavenly grandfather who helps you out when things go bad. We relate to the one and only God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He, Jesus, is how we know who the one true God is even as he himself is God. So, we could ask Peter this question. On what basis, Peter, should we live our lives working with zeal and joy to extract from our hearts and voices as much as we can to the very best of our ability? Why should we, in all those ways, give praise and glory to God? Why should we ascribe worth to God? Why should we ascribe glory with our words to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? So that's the structure of this message. And I think in verses 3 through 5, what is called the doxology of this passage, he begins with doxology. I think there are two central elements, and I want you to see this. Two central bases on which we are to praise God. Look at it. I want you to have your Bible or your device with these verses up in front of you. You should all have that every Sunday, but it's worth mentioning again. Look at verse 3 in the very next statement. These are the two bases on which we are to praise God. According to His great mercy. And then down in verse 5, who by God's power... Everything else is is verb and it's it's relating to what God has done. But the foundation of these verbs that we will encounter, the, the foundation of the acts of God that we will see is His great mercy and His power. And what God is doing through saving you and saving us together is to magnify, to present His mercy, His great mercy and His power to you so that you would glorify Him. That's the way this passage works. So understand the logic. Praise Him, Peter says. Why, Peter? Well, look at all that He has done in great mercy and power. That's that's how this text works in our minds. There should. This is another perspective on the same end goal of our salvation, to glorify God. God desires... And has ordained that His mercy and power be praised by those who have been redeemed through the operation of His great mercy and power. Do you get that? 
That those who can render to the Lord all the praise and glory due His name are not just angels who stand on the sidelines in some measure to see what God is doing in redeeming us, but rather those who have been redeemed through an operation, through the powerful working of God in His mercy towards us. We who have received His grace, His mercy, and, and seeing up close His power at work in us, We are the ones who are uniquely qualified, or you could say preeminently qualified, to praise God. So we too, then, will examine and reconsider and reimagine and remember God's great mercy and His power as we walk through this text. And if the Lord wills, we will bless God with all our might. Is that your game plan when you come into this room? I know it's difficult. on a Sunday morning to get here and to have a good attitude and to have energy and zeal and feel like giving God all the glory and honor due His name with the utmost of your voices. But He deserves it. And your brothers and sisters need to see you embracing this mindset that God deserves my utmost because of look at what He has done in His great mercy and power. May God accomplish that in our hearts each Lord's Day. And so he says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. If you have one of the notes handouts, you can see that there is a majority of space for you to take notes here. I do think this is the central claim. This, this is what, what gives rise to many of the following statements. So we're going to spend a lot of time unpacking this and reflecting on it. Everything else that's said following, probably up until about verse 5, is adorning this statement. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again. I would argue that this is not where you or I would intuitively begin listing out the reasons to praise God. We wouldn't say it like this. We would maybe take a chronological approach, and the Bible does that. God is, why, if someone were to just ask you, why should I praise God? Why should I bless God? Why should I say good things about God and ascribe Him glory? We would begin maybe with a list like this. Well, God created the universe. God is triune in nature, and that is ultimately mysterious and, and unfathomable, so He deserves praise just in His nature. He's all-powerful. He's all loving. And we would just go through the list of all these things. And maybe way, way down the list, depending on how how much you were aware of theology, you would say regeneration. But Peter begins his list of why you should praise God with his work to cause you to be born again. Why? I think there is something special and significant about the new birth, being born again. His birthing us again, His creating us again, that would be a literal rendering, He has literally recreated us, is not only the primary thing we should praise Him for, but it is itself the reason we can praise Him consistently at all. Understand, The only reason what you say towards God is not sin in some measure is because God has done this work of causing you to be born again. This is why I think Peter begins his list of reasons to praise God with, He's caused you to be born again. He has caused us to be born again. And there there are so many things we could say about this. This won't be a message unpacking all of the ins and outs of the doctrine of regeneration. If you're in our members class, we we talked about it for six weeks and the implications of it for life in the body of Christ. But I'll limit myself to just four things to say about the new birth and God causing us to be born again. And I will connect each of these to reasons to praise God. We're not just going to talk about regeneration in an objective sense. We're going to connect it explicitly with why we should praise God and how how His work of causing us to be born again creates a heart of praise and how it leads us to praise the kind that He wants. Number one, God should be praised for the overabundance of His mercy. Isn't it interesting that Peter says, 
according to His great mercy. Why modify mercy with grace, uh, great rather, and not later modify power with great? And that is, look at the contrast. So he says, according to His great mercy, and then fast forward to verse 5, who by God's power. So there's an intentional disproportionality with how Peter understands God's mercy and how he understands His power. Now it is by God's great, great power that He saves us. Paul says the exact thing in Ephesians 1, verse 19. And what is the immeasurable greatness of His power toward us who believe? According to the working of His great might, But the gift of the new birth and all of its implications in a more fundamental sense, and I would say even the primary sense, is due to God's great mercy. And I think that's what Peter wants us to see before we really get going into any of his instruction, any of his doctrine that he's trying to teach and help that he's trying to provide in a more specific way. He's trying to help and teach and instruct us by showing us how great God's mercy is. How does the gift of the new birth, His causing us to be born again, demonstrate not just God's mercy, but His great mercy? That's the question. And I think the simple answer that we could offer is, well, just consider the new birth and all of those gifts versus what we deserved. Right? What we deserved is hell and death and judgment and condemnation forever, for all eternity, and it would never be spent. Our, our, our guilt before God is something that merits all of that forever. So f- compare that with the new birth and all the privileges of the new birth. It, 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 the contrast alone gives us a sense of how great God's mercy is. But I think there's a deeper, more core truth. And I think it, it, it carries this sense that he, he has held back zero mercy and zero grace in blessing you. Paul says in Ephesians 1.8 that He has lavished His goodness upon us. And in Ephesians 1.3 that He has granted us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Understand, the Lord did not merely save and forgive you. He, through the passion of your Messiah and the powerful working of His Spirit, to borrow the words of the author of Hebrews, has saved you to the uttermost. You know, He didn't have to grant you all the privileges that you have on the basis of the new birth. He could have, in His infinite wisdom and plan, saved you, forgiven you, and given you just a little plot of land in the new heavens and the new earth, or designated us a way to live and, and not go to hell and just go to some colony like the British did in the old days with Australia. Like, we could have just been set over there, people unfit for society, I've forgiven them, but they just got to hang out over here. Tears, you know, of, of heaven. But no, brothers and sisters... He has granted you the reward and the inheritance of the firstborn. Your portion is that of Jesus Christ. He has given you the right to rule alongside older brother Jesus Christ. He has granted you the place of honor at the wedding supper of the Lamb. And He has given you the right to sit with Christ on His throne. And He has given you the unfathomable privilege of calling Him Father in truth. Praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for His great and overabundant mercy in causing us to be born again. Number two, God should be praised for His will to show mercy. So we're not moving backwards now. We talked about God's great mercy. We looked at it from one perspective, what what the extent of His mercy is. But now, we're asking the question, why is He showing mercy at all? You have to be careful, I think, how we answer that. Because I think depending on how you answer that question, why has God shown mercy, you can cut yourself off from a lot of benefit and joy and stability and peace in your life. If you don't say enough, or if you don't say the right things the right way, 
So here's a question to kind of help expose to you why this is so significant that it is by God's mercy and that it shows his will to show mercy. Here's a question. Is the new birth not also by his power? So you can look at verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded. Is it not also true that he has caused us to be born again by his power? I think that is logically necessi- is logical and it's necessary for God to have all power. All power is a logical necessity for, for any version of the prime mover. Whoever or whatever got this whole thing started has and possesses all power by definition, right? So that God has great power, while true and absolutely essential and necessary, is not the surprising thing. You understand what I'm saying? Like Whoever God is, and whatever His name is, and we believe it is Yahweh, He has all power. That, that is absolutely necessary, however you conceive of God. Not surprising. <laughs> but isn't it interesting that we still doubt His power? I think we should, this is an aside, but I think we should give a little bit of uh, a grace towards the children of Israel when we see them doubting God's power. How often and how frequently do we doubt God's power? However, it is in fact His mercy that is the surprising thing. There is nothing, I, I really need you, I want you to understand this. There is so much peace and happiness that can be found if you really get this. There is nothing that compels God to be merciful other than His will to be merciful. He does not have to show mercy to you. Otherwise, if you say that, that He had to show mercy to you, then you would have to say that He owed you forgiveness and salvation. You know, simply can't be the case. So how does God, in causing us to be born again, demonstrate to us the glory of His will and freedom to show mercy? Think about this. A sinner, even without enlightenment, without the new birth, can can delight and be happy in the fact that God has chosen to show mercy. Great! You tell someone who who isn't a believer that, hey, God has chosen to show, show mercy. That idea itself is understandable and we can rejoice in that. But only someone who is born again can delight in the fact that our rebellion is such that an all-powerful God, notwithstanding His mercy, was not obligated to show you mercy. Think of the generation of Noah. Did God have to show mercy to them? Maybe he did, and his patience, and while Noah was building the ark, but when the time was up, it's over. Think about the people at the incident of the golden calf. Notice what Moses uh, did not say. God, you're a merciful God. You must show mercy. God was fully within his rights to wipe the slate clean and start over. This is a personal thing that he does. The flavor of the text is all of us, but the new birth is personal. It is something that happens for you. There's a deeper sense of gospel awareness that you can come to because of His great gift of rebirthing us where you know and can feel deep down that if God had treated you like Pharaoh or treated you like Judas, or if He would have ordained that you would have never heard His terms of peace in the Gospel being preached to you, that it would in no way mar His mercy. It would in no way mar His graciousness. And He would be totally within His rights to do so. We are dealing with a being of such brute and utter freedom of will that he could have started it all over at any point and decided to show mercy to humanity 2.0 if he wanted to or some other creature made in his image. But because of his indomitable will to show mercy expressed in his obligating himself in his promises... He has chosen to show you and I mercy 
and he didn't have to. Do you see how much deeper and richer that is than just saying something like this? Well, God showed mercy. He showed us all mercy because he's a merciful God. He didn't have to. He was well within his rights to show mercy to someone else. And unless you can grasp that, there's so much peace that you just, so much grace that you forfeit to delight in the fact that God has chosen of his own will to show mercy to you in causing you to be born again. Praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for His resolve of will to show mercy to all of us. To you and me. Even though He didn't have to. Number three, God should be praised for His direct involvement in our plight. Consider, I mean, just look at the text. Consider who it is who has caused you to be born again if you're in Christ. I was a manager at Chick-fil-A for a while. And when I became a manager, I always enjoyed assigning the dirty tasks to my team members. Those tasks that I had to do as I worked myself up through the ranks. Oh, I still had to do a lot of difficult and hard things as a manager. And if it all fell apart, it was my responsibility. But it was so much nicer to be able to assign someone else to go clean the restrooms. And someone else to take out the trash. And to dig through the pile of trash if someone had lost their phone. It's one thing to assign someone else the duty of creating a new, birthing again, dirty, repugnant Putrid, unclean sinners. It is quite another thing to take the responsibility yourself to rebirth them. He has caused us to be born again. There are many images that come to mind to show how scandalous and offensive maybe this picture is of God himself being the one to rebirth you. But there are two illustrations from Scripture that I think show this very, very clear and maybe help us see that Jesus came and interacted with and healed lepers, got close to them, that he ate with sinners, that he embraced the impure, the unclean. And in the story of the prodigal son, when the son begins returning and the father sees him afar off, he runs to go meet him and embraces him like he had just been eating with the pigs. You think what kind of smell and stink he would have had after walking all his way back home? And the father embraces him. It, the, the audience originally hearing that story would have been aghast at the behavior of the father. At least go have a bath, right? And clean up before we have this reconciling moment. But no. The Father takes it on Himself. So how does God, in causing us to be born again, demonstrate to us the glory of His mercy? The only one who had the right to wash His hands of the mess and to send someone else to clean us up is the very one who has chosen out of His great love and mercy, unobligated, to be the one to cause us to be born again. I mean, the Bible rejoices in this. You, you, you find passages like this. God's seed abides in Him. It's scandalous that it's God Himself who does this work. Make no mistake, the Son is not the only person of the Trinity to condescend to save you. The Father has resolved to adopt you and to grant you, yes, even you, the right to enter His glory and joy forever. And He does not view it as a pollution of His celestial city to welcome you in and to give you a place in His open embrace. The Son, of course, in the most visible way, has condescended, taking on flesh the form of the servant, and died in your place, tasting death for everyone. And the Spirit joyfully comes to help you and to dwell within you and make you stand aright and to know how to please the Father, knowing that in our imperfection we will grieve Him. They all, God, all that is in God, condescends to save you. And He has done it all without the slightest hint of a begrudging emotion. 
Praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for His glorious, humble, and joyful condescension on our behalf to cause us, filthy and vile sinners and rebels as we were, to be born again by His direct and personal, intimate working. Number four, God should be praised for His initiative in what we simply could not and do not understand. Is the new birth the solution you would think of? There are other options, of course. Eradicate evil. Restore the land. Banish sickness and death. Reestablish the kingship. You see these alternative ideas of what the kingdom of God should be in the Pharisees and Sadducees and the disciples. All those things will happen in their own way, but the main reason they will happen is to provide a place of dwelling for the adopted sons and daughters of God. I think the confusion of Nicodemus is the confusion that we run into and experience when we hold high the cross and the message of reconciliation to a world that has gone mad. Jesus says you must be born again and Nicodemus doesn't understand. How is that going to fix anything? That doesn't even make sense, Jesus. But understand, the new birth, being born again, is God's way. It is His solution. And we get off our rails as Christians when we supplant the centrality of the new birth and conversion, same thing, with something else or add an and to it. But our job as ambassadors of Christ, even as we read this morning in 2 Corinthians 5, the kingdom of priests is to make God's appeal on the basis of Christ's death. Be reconciled to God. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. But what about social order and addressing injustices? What about security and domestic policy? What about oppressive governments and the rights of free people? What about private property, self-defense? Sure. Seek to do good to everyone. But as a Christian, as a church, our message is not any form of political or social reform unless what we mean by that is individual people being reconciled to God, born again to a living hope. Then, through the Word and by the Spirit, the Lord begins to work the change that He desires in culture. And it won't always be like we want. You can look at the riot in Ephesus and see exactly how it doesn't always play out to our benefit. People get saved, there's new birth happening, and the church is being built, and that only increases the opposition from the world, and Paul has to flee. So how does God demonstrate the glory of His mercy in devising a plan to save us that we absolutely need, but that we would never come up with on our own. The new birth is God's way. We have to be born again. We need a new heart. The problem isn't out there or over there or with them or with that. And when you need a a solution for them or a solution for that problem over there or a solution for this thing over here and not something in here, you get off your rails as to what Christianity is even about. When we understand that the problem is primarily in us and it is only a problem over there and with that and with these people because of something inside then it begins to make more sense as to why God would devise a plan to save the world through giving and causing the new birth. So praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for His great mercy in devising a plan, drawing upon all His infinite wisdom to save us in the exact way that we needed Causing us to be born again, even though we would have never thought of it or asked it to be the case. In a song you've probably never heard, this is such a strange way to save the world. But it is in fact the only way.
people, you and I, need to be changed. So radically changed that we are altogether new. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. This is what we need. This is what, the only, what only the Holy Spirit can accomplish. Now, been praise. Let, let's read through it again. Blessed be the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. To a living hope. And here, hope would make sense. So why modify it with living? What does this mean? I think two things are at play. First, the nature of the hope itself is for life. Life is the essence of our hope. That what God comes to do, even right now in your heart, is to bring you to life again, spiritually. He he resurrects you from the depths and gives you life toward God. You are now alive to Him and no longer alive to sin. You're dead to sin, alive to God now. That is the the centrality of our hope that He comes to do that. Second, this hope animates us with life now. Not only does it give us spiritual life in a fundamental sense, not only is it the way set for us the coming of the Lord to restore all things, but precisely because it is those things, we can abound in hope. Here's how Paul says it in Romans 15, verse 13. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. This living hope here referred to, is not some far-off, nuanced, spiritual insight for only a select few Christians and really mature people to grab a hold of. This living hope is the most basic and full response in view of your inheritance in Christ. Let me say it another way. This living hope is yours for the taking now. This is why, honestly, we are a word-centric church. This is why, Lord willing, we are a gospel-centered church. We can get together and do a lot of fun things together, and we're going to do that this evening. We're going to eat a lot of chili and pie, and it's going to be amazing. However, we are ambassadors of Christ, and my objective towards you My objective towards everyone I meet is to impart and to encourage you to have hope, living hope that animates you even now in your day-to-day because, and this just might be my perspective, but we're all grasping for hope. That is the one thing that seems to be lacking so much in so many of our lives that we just don't have it. And it's yours. It's there for the taking through what Christ has done. This is what I want to give to you. And it is through the Scriptures and through the Gospel being held high that we can have hope. This is what I want for you. This is the foundation of our hope. Believing that God will make good on His promises. He has caused us to be born again that we would trust even when evidence seems to the contrary in our personal lives, just like Abraham, that we would go strong in our faith, believing that God will do what He says. Is that your resolve? I want it to be. That's why I preach like I do. That's why I minister like I do. I want you to have that same hope. Hope doesn't put you to shame. Hope in God. So this hope we have is living because the end goal is the resurrected life. It gives us life now and it promises a more full life at the age, in the ages to come. And because it is a joy that can be ours now. We can grab onto this life-giving animated hope. But also it is a living hope because the ground of our hope is not a list of rules. It is not just a creed. It is not just an event. It is not just a book. All of those things are true and important as the ground of our hope and and contributing to our hope. They matter greatly, but they only matter because Jesus Christ is alive. This is why 
our hope is called living here because it is, it is inextricably linked with the indestructible life of our Messiah. Look at it. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Our hope is living because it hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And that not just as a significant historical event, but as the validation of His indestructible life. He lives. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. But the connection of this phrase to the rest of the passage is not just modifying our living hope, actually. Rather, this is here with this preposition to indicate for us by what means God has caused us to be born again. And this is a little bit of a quandary. Typically, especially if you've been in the new members class, we talk about the Holy Spirit's role in causing us to be born again. It is a work of the Spirit. But here... Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So look at how these prepositions stack upon each other. God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus. So what is this business about God causing us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus? That doesn't seem to make sense. At the moment that Jesus was raised from the dead, no one was born again. And no one was born again, at least in the New Testament sense, until Jesus left and we find Pentecost. And Jesus says, I've got to leave or else the Holy Spirit isn't going to come. So no one's born again when Jesus is raised from the dead. And we can't take this to mean, there's, I think some people would, would try to force this in there, we can't take this to mean through our faith in the resurrection of Jesus. He's going to mention faith in verse 5, so if he wanted to make that the point, I think he would just mention faith here. But God is causing us to be born again through the resurrection of Jesus. What does that even mean? I hope you can see how I really like this to be my job. I ask these questions. Why is it phrased this way? Knowing that it's not an accident, knowing it's not a gloss, it's there for our good, it's very exciting. So what does it mean? I think it means something like this. God causes us to be born again to a living hope on the ground of, or on the basis of, the resurrection of of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's one of the things that this preposition here can mean. But let's ask a further question. What is the connection between the resurrection of Christ from the dead and our resurrection from spiritual death? Is there there a a connection there? And is is it different than just saying it was necessary, right? We would say in any sense that it was necessary for God to raise Jesus from the dead in order for us to be alive spiritually. But is there anything more? Turn to Romans 8, verses 9 through 11. This is the only place I'll ask you to actually turn, because I want you to see this. This is attempting to answer, what is the connection between the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and our resurrection to spiritual life? You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So both ideas of life are present there. Life one day after our physical death and life now by His Spirit. There's more to say in connection with this text, but, but I think we could say it this way. The Spirit Himself only raises from the dead, spiritually and physically, those who belong to Jesus. Or to say it in the opposite way, Those who belong to Jesus must be raised from the dead. You understand the force of that connection. If you belong to Jesus, the Spirit of Christ is in you. So therefore, you must be raised from the dead. In the same way that Jesus had to be raised from the dead. This is how Peter says it when he preaches in Acts chapter 2. God raised him up. Loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. This is the first place in the text I think we can begin to see very clearly, even though it's implicit, 
not explicit, the power of God, the immeasurable greatness of God's power in saving us and how His power is on display through saving us, that unfathomably great and unspeakable power of infinite depth and ferocity has been transfixed on raising you to new life by causing you to be born again to a living hope. In short, God caused you to be born again because having given you by name to the Son, your life, your future, your destiny is inextricably linked to Christ's life, future, and destiny. Just as Christ's death and His resurrection became inevitable the instant, however we think of time, the Father chose to save you so, in that very same act of choosing to save you, of giving you over to the Son, your being born again became inevitable. So praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of His power towards us in Christ. From before all time, He has moved with unassailable might and strength to bring us to life with Christ. To a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. We've already talked a little bit about our inheritance. So these things stack on top of each other. For the sake of time, I'm just going to list one passage of Scripture in connection to each of these verses. There's so much here to unpack. There are entire lines of inquiry that are just completely undeveloped, even in a message this long over such a text. Number one, our inheritance is imperishable. From 1 Corinthians 15, Then comes the end when He delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For He must reign until He has put all His enemies under His feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under His feet. Death will die. Your inheritance is imperishable. Number two, our inheritance is undefiled. Not only will it not die, it will never be defiled. No longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. They will see His face. And His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. Revelation 22. Number three, our inheritance is unfading. Did you know it's not going to get boring? No matter how amazing the experience is after five, six, seven days doing the same thing, it could get boring. But here's the assurance you have, brothers and sisters. Speaking of even of our life now from 2 Corinthians 3, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. It's going to keep going and getting better and better and more enjoyable and more praiseworthy and you will be progressively conformed to the image of Christ We've no less days to sing God's praise than when we first begun. Number four, our inheritance is being kept in heaven for us. So who is keeping it? Who who is the subject here? Of course, it's the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. He's, He's the explicit and implicit subject throughout this whole passage. This alludes again to the power of God. He is keeping this inheritance by His power. But there's one thing that you need to note that you might miss if you're just reading through this quickly. Note that our inheritance is not heaven, per se. Your inheritance is being kept in heaven for you right now. So what exactly and narrowly in this text is being referred to as our inheritance that God Himself is keeping in heaven for you? Two passages I'll give you to answer this, and I'm I'm trying to run through this quick. 
In Him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14. And then from 1 John 3, verse 2. And we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, for we shall see Him as He is. I think we're on the right track to say it this way. What is the inheritance that is being kept in heaven for us? I think it is none other than Jesus Christ Himself and all that He will do for us in unending ages when He is fully and perfectly ours. That is your inheritance. And it, all of that, Christ Himself and everything He's going to do for you for unending ages is being kept in heaven for you safely. What what does that mean? Here's how Peter himself talks about it in Acts chapter 3. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things. He's being kept there. He's he's staying and waiting there until the time comes when all things must be restored. Praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the glory and power towards us in Christ. He is keeping our inheritance safe in heaven for us while we wait eagerly until the time appointed for the refreshing and restoration of all things. Pray that the Lord would send the Christ for these very things who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. It is by His great mercy that He started us in all of this, and it is founded on His overabundant mercy from first to last, but it has also been by His great power from first to last. And here we have the first explicit mention of His power. In the same way that His tenderness and kindness in His mercy is on display and must be on display to reassure our hearts as we consider our being brought in and made who we are, so His power needs to be on display and magnified in view of His work, His ongoing work, even, yes, in this moment, to guard you through faith. When enemies assail us, when the enemy accuses us, and when our own heart condemns us, what recourse does the beleaguered believer have in view of such peril and malice? The power of God. Paul says, if God be for us, who can be against us? Brothers and sisters, why are we so afraid? If God be for us, who can be against us? By this point, we have, Lord willing, seen so many aspects of the glory of what God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, has done. Hopefully, we can stand in awe and praise Him for it with voices that sound like we mean it. But a text like this gives us some balance, I think. Even as we look at the glory of all that God has done and that He's promised to do for us in the new heavens and the new earth, sealed by the receiving of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of our inheritance, there can be this voice in the back of your head as there is in the back of mine from time to time. This seems too good to be true. I think when you understand all that God has done, His claims for what He does and His mercy towards us, that I, I have that question. This seems too good to be true. But a text like this gives us balance. It's a back-to-reality kind of text, and simultaneously it gives us encouragement too. What is the harder reality of this text? We are not home yet. And it is not just that we're waiting around for home to come. We have to be guarded because the world hates us. 
Consider the context of them, the the original recipients. They're exiles, cast out from society. Rome doesn't want them anymore, perhaps. The the world has has rejected them, thrown them out. We don't want anything to do with you. And the reason why is because they hated Christ. They hate Christ, they will hate His followers. So we have to be guarded from them. But in a more fundamental sense, we have to be guarded from the enemy. I think this is Peter here saying that Jesus is about the work, that God the Father is about the work of doing exactly what Jesus prayed for in John 17. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. This is one of the reasons why I read the benediction from Jude so often to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy. He's the one who keeps you and guards you from now until that day when He is fully yours. And it is all through faith who by God's power are being guarded through faith. I mean, that could be a whole sermon on its own. So I hope you understand how I'm I'm pressed to say what I think needs to be said. Faith, even as it is a gift from God, as He works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure, yet is the shield that you must hold high in order to extinguish the flaming darts of the enemy. So let me, using the words of Jesus, summon you to faith. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In My Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to Myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Believe in Him. Trust that this is exactly what He's doing. It's not just believing in Jesus for for some emotional fuzzies or believing that things are going to turn out all right when clearly they won't often in this life, but because He has prepared a place for you. You're being guarded for those very things at the last day. For salvation ready to be revealed in the last time, A few weeks ago when we were talking about this, I emphasized the not yet portion of these promises, these all-encompassing realities that God is going to do one day, but not yet. But today, the emphasis is this, it's ready. Even though it's not yet, it's ready to go. Everything is set. Everything has been prepared. And Peter... And however many months it will take us to get to this passage, wants us to know that he's not just waiting up there for some arbitrary reason, holding out on us all these great promises coming to fruition. No, it is his good and saving patience. This is how he says it. 2 Peter 3, 14 and 15. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The time is short brothers and sisters, and who may abide the day of His coming? And then the heavens will pass away with a roar when He shakes not only the earth, but the heavens. And we, even now, are in the last hour. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the time draws nearer and nearer as the sands of times are sinking and seem to be going faster and faster the older I get. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. 
as the outcry against this place grows greater and greater by our brothers and sisters gone before and all the holy ones of God, He will render to everyone according to their works. He will vindicate the righteous and bring recompense on His enemies. The outcry will grow so great that the ushering in of the great and awesome day of the Lord will come. Time has drawn very short, yet the door is open yet. Be reconciled to God. Praise be to God. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ for the glory of His power towards us in Christ. In His great might and His utter freedom, in all of His power, He has made ready the end of all things. He has made ready our salvation, and He is ready to reveal it even now. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast for his son. And he sent servants to call those who were invited to the wedding feast, saying, Tell those who were invited, See, I have prepared my dinner, my oxen, and my fat calves have been slaughtered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your great mercy and Your power that have both been transfixed on saving us. Thank You for the gift of the new birth. May we walk consistently with the work that You have done in us. If we claim that these things are so in our hearts, may we show the same level of mercy towards others and kindness, and patience, and waiting for, and hastening the coming of the day of the Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.